All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show here on thelandofisrael.com, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are. And I'm back. I'm back in Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh. No more airplanes, no more APAC, no more Washington, D.C., trains, planes, and automobiles. I am back in the homeland. And, of course, I, if, if I'm in the homeland, in Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh, the holy city of Jerusalem, I'm going to be at Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov, which is an awesome uh, Torah institution, and the head of that, uh, the educational department of that Torah institution is Rabbi Mike Foyer. Rabbi Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to see you, Shai. And, of course, we are now on Spiritual Cafe, which is the segment of the show that gets us ready for the Shabbat Torah portion. Um, and before we uh, delve into the Torah portion called Shmini, which has a lot of drama in it, Jewish drama, uh, I want to uh, say a few things. First thing, is is I haven't seen you in a few weeks, Rabbi Mike. That's true. It was it was a little tough to have Purim without you. Uh, we didn't get to go through the Megillah, which is just the most I think one of the most incredible documents uh, in the history of mankind, and uh, we didn't get a chance to go over that. Chaval, Chaval, will do it next year. Uh, but instead, I was out in America and I did see my own incredible things. I saw uh, things like the APAC conference and eighteen and a half thousand Jews getting together to love Israel and to talk about the future of Israel. That was awesome. But I also got to be at something ostensibly sad, but also kind of happy, and that is I got to be at a funeral. Uh, as I got off that plane, you know that our show, the, the Spiritual Cafe portion, is sponsored by Jack in honor of his uh, wife Lillian and his sister Sarah. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was supposed to meet with Jack on Sunday, but instead, and, and when I get, get out of the plane and I turn on my phone, it turned out that his wife Lillian's grandfather, who I had met only a few months previous, uh, at the age of 103 years old, passed away. Wow. Not only that, uh, but uh, Lillian's mom, this man's son, a daughter, uh, this man's daughter, she, um, a Friday night, felt something, and she said, everybody pick up all your food, we're going over to, to Grandpa's house and, and to eat with, the, uh, we, with Grandma and Grandpa, and they sat around and they sang all the songs that he liked, and he, and he was, he, when they first came in, his face was like sullen, and, you know, it's like... It's almost being in a different world when you're at that age, as as uh, as the uh, as the Pirkei tells us, the ethics of our fathers tells us. But he, when they started singing, his face lit up, and they sang all of his favorite songs. And then basically, he mouthed, "I'm ready," and he passed away that night. No hospitals, no intubations, no diseases, no thousand pills, and he just passed away. And when I got out of the, now, I had met him only three months previous. And I got a chance, and he was very happy to meet me, and he kept saying to people, what a nice man, whatever it is. And I was just like, and when we got out of the plane, we got to be uh, at, the, at the, um, the funeral. First, it was the kind of speeches, and then we also went to the graveyard. Now, the Syrian custom is not to have a lot of people go to the graveyard, uh, so we actually made the minion. We actually made the minion, myself and the director general of, of Hebron community, the community of Hev- Hebron, Hebron, which I, where I work, we got a chance to be at this, uh, wow. at this, at this kind of uh, uh, this neshama uh, leaving this earth, and it was. I was like, um, I was very touched by that. That's that's how uh, that's how the trip started. The trip always how it starts is really how it's going to go. Start with a mitzvah. Started with a big mitzvah, and as a Jew from Eretz Yisrael, like the earth of er- of of Hebron of Eretz Yisrael, and the forefathers and the mothers uh, coming to um, to pay last respects, uh, that was an awesome uh, occasion. Uh, then there's another issue that I want to talk with you about, which is uh, the the issue that is 
really stirring up a political hornet's nest here in Israel, and really not just political, but but really a um, socio kind of sociological, uh, political, national issue, which is the soldier who was filmed shooting a downed terrorist mm-hmm. uh, and uh, how to treat him. Uh, the words execution have been floated. Others say that it was completely within his right, within the laws of war, within within a period of war. Uh, and uh, seeing him also handcuffed, uh, a lot of people are very upset about that. And just yesterday, as I was traveling through the north of this country, meeting with regular folks, including Jews and also non-Jews, Druze, the Druze. There's Jews and then there's the Druze. Uh, everybody seemed very upset at the treatment of the soldier. Uh, and also I've seen some of the comments on the uh, video itself. Haaretz posted the video. Haaretz, which is a kind of post-Zionist type of organization, posted this video and, uh, and hundreds of comments supportive of the soldier and angry at our own government uh, for, for, for treating him like this. And uh, later on in the show, you're going to hear my debate with Muttel Wolf that was on his radio show. But I wanted to kind of get your take. I haven't had a chance to see you and talk with you about it. I wanted to get your uh, sense of, um, of uh, what we're facing uh, in terms of the jihad terror and h- how, how we should deal with it. And this soldier that, that dealt with it seemingly a few minutes after the threat may have been neutralized. That's still a question mark. Um, should we should we be prosecuting him or should we be patting him on the back? Two things come to mind. Um, one is a deep disgust around the politics. Um, it's not really my field, um, but I would say that whatever happened there, and I'm unfortunately wise enough to know that just because there's a video that shows something doesn't mean that it's absolutely true. Um, and I have a trust in the military justice system to do its job, but I'm I'm really just disgusted at how um, there's a, the politics have preceded any justice here with this one declaring already that he's guilty and a murderer, the other one declaring already that he's a hero and he's innocent. I think everyone should just be quiet and and let the military take care of its own. And I do think that there should be an assumption of support for our soldiers. That's kind of my my base. And I also think that if indeed he's found guilty, then he's guilty. Um, on the other hand, the deeper problem here, I would say, is a question in Torah. You know, the Rambam says in, in the laws of murder that there's someone who's called a rodef, a pursuer, right? And that if someone's pursuing you or another person even to, to take their life, that I am obligated to stop the would-be murderer. The Rambam says I'm obligated to stop them even to the point of killing them, right? Which is unique because they haven't done anything yet. He says, I'm obligated to do that. However, if I can stop them without killing them and I use lethal force, I'm a murderer myself. So there is one perspective to say here that if there was no, necess- no necessity for lethal force, that the sol- what the soldier did indeed was murder. There's only one problem with that is that the laws of, of Rodef, of the pursuer, are in the what we would call the civil laws of the Rambam. And this is the deep question that our society faces right now. Are we at war or not? Meaning, if a citizen on the street sort of um, you know, does the, the confirmed kill, which unfortunately we've also seen, it's a fundamentally different problem than a soldier in uniform who is in a posture of war using lethal force. And the problem I see is that our government has a vested interest in avoiding the fact that we are at war as a society because it allows them to conduct most of what our lives 
happen at business as usual because if it's a social problem, you don't have to win. You don't have to put all of your resources to command and question the fundamental assumptions of your societal posture. If it's a war, well, you only fight wars to win. And that means you have to ask questions about who are we, where are we going, and where are we trying to get to. And those are the exact questions that I see our political leadership unwilling and perhaps even unable to address. And so I would hate to see this young man be a victim to that confusion. Um, in, in my mind, it's, it's rel- relatively clear in the past few months We've been we've had forty uh, Jews murdered, um, and and we are th- there's uh, the call to murder more Jews is a recurring call every single day. If that's not war, then what is? Where we're surrounded by an enemy who calls for our destruction. If that's not what war is, then then that's real confusion. If you don't if you can't if you can't say that we're at war, albeit a different kind of war, it's not a war of tanks. Uh, and it's a war of civilians. And here I, I have to also um, I also have to register one tiny disagreement with you, which is uh, I am a civilian, but in a certain situation I am turned into a, a, a police officer or a soldier. I mean, to say in a certain situation, if a soldier or a police officer is not there, I am a trained uh, Israeli defender. And if I have to take out my pistol to defend another person or to defend you know the society around me or myself at that moment i just i just have a different hat it's like i'm wearing green at that well, moment that's because armies don't go to war societies go to war and and therefore you as you said see us at war so therefore you're absolutely right you're a soldier in that moment you're not you're not a civilian my point is if 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 um if you if we were i don't know in in uh downtown new york and some guy came up to you and said you know give me your wallet made a lunge with your knife you shot him in the knee and he's on the ground writhing in pain. And he said, well, you know what? This guy shouldn't have gone for my wallet. And then he shot him in the head. That would be murder. Right. No, we are, we are not in that kind of situation. We're in a, we're in a societal, uh, our civilization is being threatened uh, by this jihad, at least in my opinion. And I guess that is indeed the discussion that's happening. All right. And I'm very glad that you brought in some Torah I- into it. And that opens up uh, our discussion of, a, of, a, of another Torah story, which also in- involves death. It involves the judgment of God. Uh, against Aaron and his sons. Uh, this is one of the most painful, if you read it slowly and not just read it kind of fast and kind of as though you're used to it, it's actually quite shocking. And, and the story basically is that if you remember the book of Exodus where in the last few uh, chapters we really started talking about the creation of the tabernacle and painstaking detail, painstaking detail uh, some, sometimes would, would be seemingly repetitive detail about the plan to construction, the construction, the erection of it, the whole thing uh, uh, until it's finally, there it is. And in this week's Torah portion, Shmini, which is around uh, chapter 9 of the book of Leviticus, um, it's actually starting to work. The, 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 the actualization of this is actually coming into practice. Here we go. Finally, and we've been waiting for so, so long chronologically and thematically we've been waiting so long suddenly uh, as uh, the practice begins now the uh, newly anointed kohanim priests uh, ministers are are starting their work and good things are happening Uh, a fire of god comes down and eats the korbanot eats the offerings and Aaron is blessing the people, and and how should we say the machine is the clock is ticking, it's ticking. You know, it's, it's like it's set into motion. Everything seems to be going just splendidly, and then suddenly, um, two of Aaron's sons 
bring what the Torah describes as a strange fire or uncalled for fire and some kind of offering that they were not uh, commanded to do and a fire comes down and consumes them. The two sons of Aaron are killed. Their, their souls are w- taken away through their nostrils. They're, they're, they're just kind of like snuffed out. And, and everybody's like, everybody's like, what just happened? Uh, and Aaron, rea- Aaron and Moses have these incredible reactions. First thing, uh, you know, Moses says, well, this is what God had basically told me, that with the close ones, I will be judged. I will be judged by those who are close to me. Um, and I'll be, I'll be sanctified through the ones that are close to me. Uh, and Aaron, uh, in an amazing feat, accepts the judgment. And he, or at least he stands still. He doesn't break down. He, he, doesn't, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't reject God. He, in, in a sense, he just like, it says that he kind of... He just holds it. He just holds still. He just holds it together. Uh, and then, uh, and then we'll learn about how it goes on. But let's let's just stop here and, and talk about this uh, super dramatic moment where things were going so darn right and they went so wrong, uh, where where God takes out these two uh, sons of Aaron, and Aaron is kind of asked to continue with the loss of his sons right before his eyes. Well, it's deeply ambiguous whether it went wrong. I know we we place such a high value on human life that we immediately see a story like this and we focus on its tragic element. Two lives were lost, um, which is, is admirable. But Moshe's response opens up for us a perspective on the loss of their life, which is completely different. He says, right? As you said, with those who are close to me, I will be sanctified. And, you know, I want to speak later a little bit more about that word, kadosh, holy. Um, because it has a core meaning, which I'm going to leave untranslated, um, which speaks deeply to what happened here. That somehow there was a final stage of intimacy for God's presence to be fully in the world, which was consuming. It was consuming. And, and the real question lies in, in the line you pointed to, which is that they offered Eish zara asher lo They offered a strange fire, which God had not commanded. Meaning, why does it have to tell me it was a strange fire which God had not commanded? Shouldn't it be by definition if it's a strange fire? It was other than what God commanded? There's no redundancy here. That somehow what it was that happened was beyond their natural state. Right? Because don't forget that zara also summons up the idea of a vodah zara, what we call strange worship, right? The worship of other gods. Idolatry. Idolatry. But the key is, is that there's a vodat Hashem, there's a service of God, and there's a vodah zara. Right, there's strange worship, and even though we translate it as idolatry, it's important to remember they share a root of oda, its service. In the same way, this ash, this fire, which on one hand is what we use to offer the sacrifices to the incense, right, and in a minute will actually be used to ex- to execute God's judgment, right. That ash is natural to them. The question is, what's the zarut? What's the strangeness? What, what which which was not commanded in this moment? Well, some people, some of our uh, rabbis, our sages say that they came in maybe inebriated because immediately after this chapter is the laws against coming in to serve in the temple inebriated. But uh, what rings more tr- more more solidly with me, in any case, is that later in the Torah, Rashi, uh, in, in already in the book. Uh, of Deuteronomy at the end of the Torah will say, will say, look, this happened uh, as a 
um, as a as a boomerang, as a karma uh, for the act of supporting the Jewish people's uh, effort in the Golden Calf. Mm-hmm. In the Golden Calf, uh, Aaron plays a significant role. Yes, he's trying to stop it, but he kind of also allows it to happen, and he kind of plays a certain role in in, in allowing the Jewish people. And the Torah says about him that that he allowed them to go wild. Yes, and. And what Rashi's going to say later on, and, I, and I, it, again, this, it works for me, which is he's going to say, look, you let my children go wild, I let your children, God says, I let your children go wild. You know, Jews died in, the pla- in, the, in a plague that came subsequent to the golden calf, so to your children die. You have to feel the pain. You have to feel the pain. By the way, uh, Moses' son almost gets killed. If we remember, Gershon gets almost swallowed up by, by a snake or killed by a snake. Sure. Uh, and Miriam's son, Hur, gets killed by the Jews. And Aaron's two sons get, get killed in this, uh, in this fire. Meaning to say, when you're close to God, you're dealing with these things, uh, it's, A, it's dangerous. And, but B, it's like you've got to know the pain of my children. And the way you have to understand how God says, you have to understand how I see the world. And my children are lost. You've got to know that about, about your, you've got to feel it on your own flesh. The, I mean, that is definitely uh, the moral plane. I think there's a, a deeper existential plane in which this is happening. Because, you know, after all the details that you listed, right, the, the, the speaking out of the structure and the Mishkan and the repetition and its construction and everything that you said, one might actually think that this is a technical system. Right, like now, all we do is got to switch the flip or flip the switch and offer the 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 fats, and there we go, presence of God, boom. Right, but the reality is, is that God is a living flame, and flame by definition is consuming; it's not bounded. Right, and 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 in order to know how it is to live with God, there has to be that pushing of the boundary and the falling back. Right, we saw this on Purim. Right? Why is it on Purim? Purim is such a holiday of of ecstatic celebration why can't we just get a little bit drunk and and have a nice time and smile and and tell a little story no no you're supposed to get to the point where you don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai because you have to cross that boundary to understand where it is and it's true you don't live there we don't live in an unbounded world the Mishkan is very bounded but nevertheless imagine how cold the service in the temple in the in the tabernacle would have been if they had never actually touched the wall to burn themselves, and I believe that's what Moshe is saying to Aaron. Moshe says, "Listen, Aaron, I got news for you. I knew all along that the only way to really get a fire started is to make some sparks. And even though once you get it started, you can feed it gently and keep it, but there has to be that moment of ignition. I just thought it would be me or you, and I was ready for that." But I see now that somehow your children were even holier. And I believe that's why Aaron could hold it. Not just on the moral plane you're speaking about that he accepted God's judgment. I think he understood that in many ways this was the fulfillment. And to that I have to add something which is a little uncomfortable to the Western humanist, even in me, but out there, is we have to remember that even in the Torah, life is not the highest value. And we live in a world which nobly, in many respects, has placed human life as the highest value. Um, but the Torah says, no, the highest value is the will of God. And it's true that the will of God in, let's say, 99% of the time is that human life be sacrosanct. But it's also true that there's another 1%. And if you see where that 1% lies, that 1% lies in all the places that allow the fire of truth to really burn in the world. 
So, you know, we're, now, now that you started talking through this, I started seeing that there's really a theme to today's show, uh, which is life and death. Uh, the first one I talked about, the, the grandpa uh, who passed away in Brooklyn. Uh, the second one is, uh, is the, the, the death of uh, Aaron's two sons. And the third one that we're going to go to and we're going to keep going is actually animals, eating animals, the killing of animals uh, for eating. And the reason I'm, I'm making this what seems to be a jerky uh, a transition, and that is because the Torah itself will, will, will take it to uh, a different place, this Torah portion, and talk about uh, the, the kosherness of, of certain animals or the non-kosherness of other animals, meaning to say the ability of Jews, Jewish people, who follow the law to eat or not eat certain things. So I want to tell you famously in our family, my mom, who started her scientific career as a uh, oceanographic scientist, meaning to say she studied the seas, and she was not religious at the time at all, nor was she aware of these laws. Uh, she stopped eating shellfish. She just stopped eating them after studying them, meaning to say she under, she's like, no, 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 you're not supposed to eat this stuff. They're the filters of the sea. Right, they're the filters of the sea. It's garbage. It might taste good, but it's, it's really not good for you. That's not what you're supposed to eat. And that was just a simple scientific conclusion that she came to. And science may or may not back up um, uh, certain decisions that the Torah makes, but the Torah is going to limit us, and it's going to give us signs and certain things. For birds, it's not really signs, but it's actually a litany list of which birds can you eat, which birds can you not eat. Uh, with fish, to uh, specific signs. Insects, uh, very few that are, you know, that you can eat. Most insects you cannot eat, uh, and um, with 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 uh, with uh, mammals. Meaning to say, what do we call these things? Animals that we know, like like uh, cows, cows, sheep, sheep goats, goats, right? Or pigs. Uh, the Torah is going to lay out a system by which you'll know. It's got to have a split hoof, and it's got to chew its cud. These are weird things. I'm supposed to eat something that has split hooves and, and chews its cud, but if, it, if it's got like split hooves like a pig, but it doesn't chew its cud, that's not kosher? What's, what's that all about? What is that all about? And, and there's two ways to look at it. One way to look at it, there's many ways to look at it, but, but two obvious ones is like, this is just weird stuff, some, some, some kind of anachronistic thing. Or you say, and I've, you've heard, uh, you know, it used to be that you would hear from like Reformed Jews especially, you would hear things like pig is not kosher because of certain diseases that were prevalent at the time. They didn't know how to refrigerate and so on and so forth. The other one is like, here is a secret knowledge that God is imparting to us through this book about what's good for us and not good for us or what will keep us separated or not keep us separated. This is a secret knowledge that's now being given. It's like, psst, come over here. I got, I got to tell you a secret. Here's the animals you don't want to eat. Here's the ones you do want to eat. Here's the fish. Here's the birds. I'm telling you now as a secret, this is going to be good for you. This is good for you. This is good for me. It's good for us. It's good for the world. And it's like, it's like when you read these kind of Torah portions, you're like, are you talking to me, God? Are you telling me things that like nobody else knows? It's an amazing revelation uh, 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 about, about how to, how to uh, maneuver this world. Yeah, it, it's, it's a recipe for navigating life whose end goal, in my mind, is again, Kedusha, holiness. And, and um, as we were speaking before the show, you, you brought up that, that sort of eternal question around Kashrut, around the dietary laws of... Uh, is there purpose to keep us separate from the nations of the world, or is that just a consequence? Right? There are many laws. It's very clear their purpose is not to keep us separate, but it's a consequence. But here in Kashrut, it seems to be 
that once you start eating different things and then in the extension of that using separate vessels for your cooking and 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 separate processes for how you mix things etc you are become inevitably separate i just went to drew's house yesterday mm-hmm. and i just couldn't eat anything that was being offered to me yep and they respected that but they respected it to, to the point that okay i respect your religion but it's not like fun there's something it's awkward it's awkward. There's it's, a barrier. It, right. It's a barrier. It's like you and I, We I can't eat in your house. I'll say it differently. You and I are not the same. That's that's what it comes down to, right? And and um, there's a deep distaste for that assertion, especially in Western culture. I mean, we're not the same. Because not the same must mean better or worse. Why don't we want to go there right now? Just not the same. And... Um, I've seen recently a deep misunderstanding of what holiness is. I asked my students recently, what does the word kadosh mean? So they all say holy. I say, great, what's that mean? And most of them get confused because they've never really thought about it. And some say it means separate, which is, which is uh, actually a reasonable definition, which is rooted in the Middle Ages, but I'm very wary of the Middle Ages in general. Why? Because separateness is not the essence of what holiness is. It's its consequence. What do I mean? The essential definition of holiness is devotion. Right, I, I can prove it to you very easily. If you devote something to the Holy Temple, you should see it built soon in our day. What do you call it? Hekdesh. It becomes hekdesh. It's devoted property. Right now, because it's hekdesh, it has what's called din meila. It's forbidden to use it for any other purpose. It's separate from all usages. Right. But it's not defined by its separateness. It's defined by its devotion, and an expression of its devotion is separateness. Also, wh- what do we call marriage? Uh, Kiddushin. Kiddushin, right? And, and that's because when you became devoted to your wife and she devoted you, you became separate from every other person. It doesn't, that's the separateness is not what defines you. The devotion defines you and the separateness is an expression of it. In the same way, Kashrut, the laws of the dietary laws are about holiness. That's why, by the way, the Rambam, when in his great compilation of the Mishnah Torah, right, when he puts the laws of Kashrut in, he puts them together with the laws of sexual relationships in a book he calls Sefer Kedusha, a book of holiness. And you'd say to yourself, wait, what do sexual laws and dietary laws have in common? The answer is they're about devotion. They're about devotion which expresses itself in being separate. And that is, in my mind, what this entire Torah portion is about. And it's also about uh, those things are, there are often related. Let's say you're trying to give a, a lesson about keeping your eyes averted uh, from from something that you're not supposed to look at, and you're talking to young people, so you'll often say, and you see a Twinkie in the store, or you see a sandwich that you're not supposed to eat, and and we can use food as as a, as something that is akin to sexual things because it's like it's something that you want, it's something that, that gives you a pleasure, and it's something exactly that at those points where where you have to separate yourself off and not be devoted to those things in order to be devoted to a thing above. And you know why? Because what's underlying them both is desire. And that's very important to understand is that is that that holiness in its definition as devotion is about taking that deep human desire for intimacy and connection and directing it to God. Right. And, and, and that's the idea. This is why the world is so confused today, because we have so twisted and manipulated our processes of desire and, and, and devoted them to all kinds of things other than God, that we don't even understand what healthy desire is any longer. And then religion masquerades as uh, the suppression of desire, which is, I think, the greatest tragedy of all. So kosher is our ability to, to take something that we desire in this world, dietary laws, will help us uh, keep ourselves, how should I say, from going over the edge, keep us 
plugged into to him. Keep us devoted. But but I also think that it's such a it's such a gift to be given this knowledge. That's what amazes me. Yeah, sure. It's like it's like look, I created the world, and I'm telling you that I don't want you to eat this. I don't know if he doesn't want us to eat this because it's not good for us, or because by by not eating it we stay devoted to him. All of the above, maybe. You know, all answers are right. But but it's an amazing thing that Torah is going to be like. It's going to lay it out, and it's like I am the artist. I'm now going to tell you. I, I, I've, I you know the fish that you keep on. You know, I watch shows about fish my, with my kids, and it's like they're always finding new. Like they're like this this Wobegon shark has uh, never been seen before. What a, you know? It's like I made all these things really, and you you know I want you to eat only things that have scales and fins. It's like it's like it's like I I personally have this belief that the wackier it is. The more awesome it is, like the more holy it is. It's like, what? Oh, wow, you're revealing to me this knowledge? Or, or tefillin. I love seeing Jews with tefillin on their head with phylacteries, quote unquote. By the way, that's not a good word. I looked it up. Phylacteries is not a good word. It means like an amulet charm. Forget it. But you see Jews with these leather boxes on their head. You're like, that is so weird. That is so cool. That is so cool. Thank you for that knowledge. I'm going to take a little break now for a second. Uh, Rabbi Mike Foyer on Spiritual Cafe. I want to tell you about two uh, f- two couples that I met. They're actually not couples, but they're all in couples and names. What I mean is I met two Andrews on the trip uh, who are listeners to the show and friends of what we're trying to do uh, in Israel and Hebron and connecting the Jewish people. In Jerusalem, of course, uh, here at Beit Midrash Yaakov, connecting the Jewish people to the Jewish story. Uh, Andrew H. and Andrew W. They are two amazing people that I met on this trip. And I also want to thank two... Two Aaron's. Uh, one Aaron is Aaron F, and he has donated at thelandofisrael.com a, a monthly donation, and that makes this show and the other shows at thelandofisrael.com possible. Thank you very much, Andrew and uh, a- a- Aaron. 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 The two Andrews, and now we're up to Aaron's, right? And so, thank you very much, Aaron F, and his mom, who is a big listener to all these shows. Aaron W, on the other hand, is a man who sent me uh, a very, very very powerful and very personal email about many of his personal struggles, including the loss of his fiance to cancer mm. and a lot of painful things. And all I want to say is that uh, it's, it's a great honor for me to be in touch with him uh, and help him through uh, these struggles. Uh, maybe if I get his permission, I will send you, Rabbi Mike Foyer, uh, some of the, um, this correspondence so that you can, you could, uh, you can help uh, Aaron um, live the incredible life that and gift of life that he has. He's an incredibly talented and beautiful and smart person, but he's been uh, he's had a deck of cards that has not been easy at all, at all. Uh, but we 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 love you, Aaron, and and thank you so much for being just thinking that we could be part of your life. That's amazing. Thank you very much. Uh, fi- finally, uh, before we get back to the Torah portion, I want to also thank the good people at Hebron, Hebron.com. Uh, is the website. Uh, Hebron is a Jewish community south of Jerusalem, the sister of Jerusalem. It is where the fathers and mothers of the Jewish people are buried. It's where King David started his kingdom. It's where Caleb came to pray when the Jewish people were coming back to the land of Israel. Uh, it is an incredible place, uh, very challenged, surrounded by jihad and, and other negative forces. Come and strengthen it. Please be part of the story. That's where I work. I'm the international spokesman there. And uh, when you're coming to the land of Israel, and of course you're coming to Yerushalayim to meet God, come meet the founders uh, of the Jewish people and the brave people who are defending those founders today. And this Torah portion so far, let's get back to it. We talked about uh, Grandpa in Brooklyn. We talked uh, about Aaron's sons. You gave a very interesting 
And I think alternative approach to that, that does exist, of course, in the sources of, of how high uh, Aaron's sons were and how they were kind of the catalyst or the, you know, the match head to start the process of, of igniting the process of the work in the temple, that kind of starter moment, the starter fire. Um, then we went to the kosher, the laws of, of, of uh, kashrut, and in all those really was life and death. Uh, the kosher is, and, and all the sacrifices are, are also in the sense in lieu of our own personal death. When you, when you give an offering in the temple, you're supposed to look at that offering and say, the truth is, I deserve to be uh, uh, offered up on, on this uh, for my sins and for other reasons. I, I don't even, you know, this is a gift of life that I have. I I've, I've may have screwed it up. I'm offering this thing instead of my life. And when you offer up an offering, you're supposed to push down on its head with all of your strength and you're supposed to confess your sins. And then that thing like takes your energy and takes your sins, you know, uh, ostensibly, and then is offered up. Finally, uh, in, in, in this specific week's Torah, Reading, we are going to read also from Parshat Para, the red heifer. The law is having to do with the red heifer. And this is all in preparation of the upcoming holiday of Passover. How is the red heifer connected to Passover? So the red heifer is a process by which we gain purification. Right? We Really, it's not a time or place to go through all the details of why that is. But it's a process of taking this cow and, and, the, and the hyssop and the cedar and the, and the scarlet and burning them together down to their ashes, and then these ashes are used to remove the, pure, the impurity of death in particular. And in order to get to Passover, which is um, the wedding night, so to speak, between you know, God and the Jewish people, or at least the engagement, we could go through that whole discussion, but it's certainly a moment of tremendous intimacy and devotion and holiness, right? Purity is the gateway to holiness, because it's what removes barriers to relationship. If you think about how ritual purity is used in Jewish law today, that's pra- exactly what it does, right? When, when a, a man and a woman have a period of separation, a woman goes to the mikvah, to the ritual bath, and they return to intimacy. Right? If a person wants to go up onto the Temple Mount in order to get a little bit closer to God, they have to do it in a state of purity, they go to the mikvah. If a non-Jew decides to come within the boundaries of Am Yisrael and join in a more intimate relationship with Israel and therefore with God, part of what they do is they go to the mikvah, right? Because purity is the gateway to holiness in that definition of holiness of, of devotion and intimacy. And here's the kicker. As we spoke about kashrut as uh, uh, difficult to understand. In fact, I would agree with you that, in fact, I don't think it's meant to be understood. It's meant to be lived. And you can contemplate it or not. It's meant to be lived. And that's because it is a particular type of law in the Torah, which is called a chok. Right? A chok is a law which our sages teach us whose reason cannot be understood. It's not that it doesn't have a reason or it's, it has a super reason or whatever. The, the bottom line is we, in our, in our limited capacities, will not get to the bottom of it. We right. won't own it. We will not own it. He owns it. And the red heifer is the quintessential chok. I mean, who can understand why a red cow, some cedar, a hyssop... You know, et cetera, would produce purity. Furthermore, of course, not only does it produce purity, but you know, the person who burns it becomes impure, and if and if and if the priest uses it to purify someone else, he himself becomes impure. 
You know, that aspect of of the red heifer never seemed that mysterious to me. That specific aspect. Uh-huh. Certainly what you said at first, which is how is this thing even working? Yeah. Sure, yeah. I, 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 that will never be known. But it doesn't strike me as so odd that the person who's closest to something and touches it in its most concentrated form gets kind of a reverse effect. I can give you many, many examples of that. The fireman who is getting, who's going in to rescue people from a fire or put out a fire, he's the one who gets burnt. Right. Yes. Say the closer you are to a concentrated form of something, it, it may have a different effect on you. The opposite effect. It's not like it's not like it's like it's like a, it's like a fireman. You would think that because he's so gifted at at, at fighting fires, he's the one who's definitely not going to get burnt. No, it's you get too close to something. You get you know a fire. If you stand next to it, it keeps you warm. You walk into it, it's going to burn you. So in touching source, you touch that paradox that I think can be a source of purity and impurity. Because what about, what about a person source. who's close to God, like Moses? He's very, very close to God. That means he's very, very holy. But there's, there's one layer more, and then he's gone. He's, he's going to be killed for, exactly. for seeing God too closely. So you're, you're touching on what I'm driving at, is that there's a place in which paradox, which we often think means contradiction, is actually just teaching us that everything has one source. right? And, and that's the beauty of these hokim. And it's so hard to grasp the idea that opposites come from the same source, that it has to be taught in a chok. You know what the, you know, a chok is very closely related to the word chakak, to engrave. And you know what the fundamental difference between engraving and writing is? Writing, I communicate information by taking one substance, ink, and putting it on top of another. Paper, here you go. Now you can learn. For engraving, I can put information to something by taking something away. Right? It's that like on Purim, that acceptance that I can't really know how two opposites coexist and they have one source, but I, I can accept it. I can act on it. And, and that itself is also a preparation for Pesach. It is a, a specific type of purity of accepting the fact that there's only one source. Uh, were you telling me God split the Red Sea, 10 plagues? and yet, Yes, I'm telling you that. But all the historians in the... the okay, that's fine. I'm still telling you that. Are you saying this is true? Absolutely. How do you know? Well, here's the story. And that is why what we're after on Pesach is, is um, the purity of the Muna and, that, and the holiness and devotion to God, which it brings. And, and this is an essential step in the preparation for it. All right. So we are starting indeed to get prepared for uh, Pesach. This week we're going to be reading about the red heifer. And we're, we're already... Purim is this like is this like is this bright star that kind of explodes on the scene, and but it then dims very quickly mm-hmm. because then it's like the minute Purim's over, it's like reset, etch a sketch, shaky moment, and it's time to go to Passover. It's time to get right into it. We're already thir- less than thirty days before the holiday, and we're getting ready for it. So in the next few episodes of Spiritual Cafe, with the help of God, we will be concentrating, getting ready for certainly the Torah portion, but also for the holiday of Passover, which has laws. And, and, and the, uh, the, uh, the text of, of Passover, so much to learn and so much excitement coming. It is a pilgrimage holiday. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you are invited to Jerusalem to take part in this pilgrimage holiday. It is coming up. If you didn't buy your tickets yet, do it now uh, because God is calling us to Yerushalayim. We're here in the heart of Yerushalayim in Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov. The website is sulamiyakov.com. Uh, great... Um, uh, great uh, audio tracks, maybe some videos, lots of lessons. You can continue your learning there. Certainly more great radio at thelandofisrael.com. I'd like to hear from you, yishai at thelandofisrael.com or at Twitter, 
Eshai Fleischer at Facebook, Eshai Fleischer, LinkedIn, YouTube. I don't know what else. I don't have Snapchat. Don't try me there. But the bottom line is that there's a way to connect. But the most important thing is that you're connected to the story of Israel, to the God of Israel, to the Torah of Israel, uh, and to Jewish strength, which is being reborn in our time. Rabbi Mike Foyer, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. It's great to see you back. And I forgot, of course, Hebron.com. Stay tuned. More great stuff is on the way. And Shalom.